Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus is going to be talking about salt and light. So if you're able to stand, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. God Almighty, we thank you for your word. And as your son, Jesus Christ, teaches us through these words, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to listen intently, but also to listen in reverence. There's an important message here that your son, Jesus, is teaching us. And we who are your children, we who are called to be citizens of your kingdom, there is a responsibility that you have given us, and we cannot do this apart from you. So God, today I pray that you would open our hearts to listen, to understand, to ponder, to meditate on these words. Show us, Father, what it means to be this salt and this light. This is, these, are, these are images, metaphors that may be foreign to us. And so God, I pray that you would teach us the deeper truth of what you're meaning us to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please have a seat. God bless you guys. Jesus continues here in his Sermon on the Mount after the Beatitudes, and and the tone here is still written to those who are disciples under Christ. He says here, you are the light of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So this next section of Jesus' sermon here follows the teaching of the blessed state of all the children of God. If we are children of God, we are blessed. And that's what the Beatitudes are teaching us. The Beatitudes that lead into this passage that we're looking at today are reminding us of the state of God's children. Now we are being challenged by Jesus here about we now have a responsibility as blessed. If we are in a state of blessedness, if we are happy in Christ, right? If Christ has brought us into this state of blessed happiness, we now have... A responsibility. God is calling us as his people to be someone. Coming to Christ is not something that we just check off the to-do list. When we are made new in Christ, we are then new people. We Our very being changes. And because of that, God has set us in a position to be salt and light. This change that Christ brings into us causes us to be something. Now, one can argue, and many, actually many Christian scholars in the medieval Catholic Church say this, they say that to be in a state of blessedness that Jesus teaches about here, one could only be in this state of blessedness if you were separated from the fallen world. 
So many of the Catholic scholars of the medieval church argued, and they would use this text, if we're going to be salt and light, or if we're going to actually participate and be blessed as the Beatitudes define us as blessed, the only way to be that is to isolate yourself from the impurities of the sinful world, which actually kind of became a foundational argument for monasticism and isolating yourself away from the world to dedicate your life to a, a life of prayer and, and solitude and, and, and asceticism is the word. That was the argument that many medieval scholars would would come out of this text. But Jesus, I don't think, never intends for his kingdom to be one of isolation. Now, I think there there are proper moments to isolate and get away lonely with the Lord. Jesus did it regularly. He did it appropriately. He would get away privately with his Lord, his God, his Father in heaven, and he would be quiet and still. But I don't think that Jesus is speaking these words in the Sermon on the Mount as a call for us as the children of God to isolate ourselves permanently from the world. We are now given a charge here to be someone. And the next verses here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, these now explain some of the responsibilities of the citizens of the kingdom. You see, the beauty of Jesus' teaching style is that he would often use metaphors. And whenever you hear a teaching using metaphors, it's never just a surface meaning. What does this mean? Jesus is now saying that we're going to be salt shakers for the kingdom, right? We're going to be torch lights for the kingdom. No, there's something deeper here in these metaphorical images that Jesus wants us to see. And so verses 13 through 16 here employ these metaphors of salt, saltiness, uh, light, uh, city, you know, lights of the city and, and lamp lights. He's using these images to teach us something important. And we're going to explore here today um, what these interpretations might be. But first we need to understand what the standards of salvation are here that Jesus is teaching about. Let's understand that first. And by understanding these standards of salvation, we're going to understand what all this means. Because the standards of salvation and what Jesus teaches here about salt and light is a foundation for much of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. So this is really just laying, still laying some groundwork here for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Now Matthew introduces this Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 1, by establishing Jesus' authority. The first four chapters of Matthew, that's what he was doing. He's laying out exactly the authority that Jesus has to teach but also to save. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, we see, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. This is, these are words coming from someone with authority. And, a, and there's a clear analogy here between Jesus going on the mountain to teach something, some, the, the most profound truths, and actually another a biblical figure who did this, Moses, if we remember. Moses goes up on the mountain. God calls Moses up on the mountain, and he and Moses interact for a period of time, and Moses comes down to the people, and Moses, with authority, gives them the law. Likewise, Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount can be seen doing the exact same thing, and we're going to look at this next week as Jesus is saying, it's more than this, I am the fulfillment of the law. 
But let's think about, when we think about Moses here and, and Jesus going up on the mountain, we know that Moses in Exodus chapter 19, um, he goes up on the mountain and Exodus 19 verses 2 through 3 say, uh, there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. You see a very similar Thing happening here. Moses speaking to the people from the mountain, Jesus speaking to the people from the mountain. Now after seeing this, Jesus here is really being shown as the long-awaited Messiah that would come from what the Mosaic law prophesied years and years and years and years ago. So if Jesus here is the long-awaited Messiah, we can also see that this long-awaited kingdom that God's people have been waiting for for generations is now finally here. That's the understanding here of the Sermon on the Mount. This is why Jesus is now teaching in verses 13 through 16 exactly what this kingdom is supposed to be. So this is point, I mean, this is important to understand the Sermon on the Mount. There are in, there is indeed a new kingdom. There is indeed a new group of people. There is indeed a fulfillment of what all of the Old Testament prophets have been calling for and Jesus is teaching something new, but still yet very familiar. But he's going to give the answers here to what's happening. See, it was always God's plan to not just give commandments that his people should obey, right? How many people obey the commandments of your boss out of duty and obligation? <laughs> how, many how many children obey their parents out of duty and obligation? I hope not. I hope whenever we follow laws and commands and rules and structures, we don't do so out of an attitude of obedience or out of duty. I hope we obey because we are children of God. And so God from the very beginning never intended to give merely a mosaic law as a list of commandments that you are duty bound to follow. Instead, by the, in the very beginning, God's plan was to create a new people, to create a new kingdom, to establish an eternal kingdom on, on earth. And here Jesus is announcing this even now in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Jesus is teaching here exactly what this kingdom looks like. You see, there's actually two kingdoms here kind of being spoken of. The kingdom of fallen humanity or the kingdom of man and the kingdom of heaven. If, if you are a child of God, do you understand and feel daily that there seems to be two worlds in, in competition within you, right? If you're a new child of Christ, if you've been made new, you feel like you are part of something new, rightly so. But then there's this tug within you of the world that we're still living in, this kingdom of man that is constantly at war with the kingdom of heaven. It's a, it's a, it's a reality of our world. It's a reality of being the church. And Jesus is saying, because there are two kingdoms warring with one another, you as citizens of the kingdom of heaven now have a responsibility. I have made you to be someone, and I have made you to be salt, and I have made you to be light. You see that? So what does this mean? Let's look at this here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. What does this mean? I mean, when I was a kid reading this, I thought, you mean God is like picking us up in a salt shaker and spreading us all over the world or something? I, I, how many people here like salt? How many people here put salt on their watermelon? Uh, 
<laughs> right? There's, there's some folks, you know, they put salt on everything, right? If you're a person who puts salt on your watermelon, then you're from the deep south. You're from old south culture, right? Um, my, 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 my dearly departed grandmother, rest her soul, she put salt on everything and she put it on her watermelon. She taught me as a child. I never liked it as a kid. I thought, why would you put salt on a watermelon? It's, you know, I don't know. I have, now, as I've gotten older, putting salt on watermelon is, is okay from time to time. I wouldn't do it all the time, but it's not bad. But what is it that salt does? Salt here has a, has a property in it that, that Jesus is using this metaphor for the citizens of the kingdom for a reason. You see, a lot, there's an emphasis here that a lot of different scholars emphasize different uses of salt in the ancient world. The ancient world lived around salt. Salt was pivotal to the ancient world culture, economy, everything. Salt was in the center of it. Sometimes salt was used as a preservative. Because, I mean, let's face it, this was at a time before refrigeration, before chemical preservatives that keep our food alive for years and years and years, right? It's This salt was a preservative. It was a very crucial preservative for food. But now at other times, salt was an agent that was actually used to ferment manure. We can see this in Luke chapter 14, verse 35. If you're taking notes, Luke chapter 14, verse 35, Jesus now speaking about this, he says, talking about worthless salt. Actually, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 14 because Luke chapter 14 is a parallel passage to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through uh, 16. So flip over to Luke chapter 14. This is a different account of the same teaching from Luke. So Luke chapter 14 Beginning in verse 34, Jesus says this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Very fundamental question. Verse 35, it is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we see an indication here that salt had a lot of different purposes, not just for food, but for other agricultural purposes. It served a, served a need. But the use of salt here in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 13, the context here of being salt of the earth, the idea of salt here is actually salt as a flavoring agent or an additive that actually causes the meat to flourish. It's more than just a seasoning to give you taste. It's, it, that's a lot of it. But it actually penetrates the flesh of the meat and causes the meat to change. If you, anyone who likes to uh, cook, you understand the importance of salt and proper seasoning on meat before you cook it. It actually changes the, the cellular structure of the meat muscle. And so salt here that Jesus is speaking about is this Use of salt to literally change what it is added to. Yes, it gives it flavor. Yes, it preserves it. But it literally penetrates the flesh and becomes something else that is worthwhile and tender and juicy and edible, right? You see, it's obvious here that Jesus is using a play on words. Because think about this. If salt, in this context, we are the salt of the earth as a flavoring agent or as an additive that actually penetrates and flourishes in the meat, the Greek word here used for lost 
its taste, right? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is using a bit of a play of words here. And let's ponder this for a second. If salt is mined from an impure source and it is added to any kind of a meat, it immediately dissolves and the only thing left are the impurities of the original source. When salt that is impure dissolves, there's no more salt. The only thing left is the dirt and the impurities that you mined with it, that you shouldn't have mined with it anyway, that you should have purged out. In other words, there's no such thing as tasteless salt. I want you to think about that logically. Has anyone ever had salt that did not taste like salt? Salt literally cannot lose its saltiness unless it is an impure source and it's not really salt to begin with. That's the point that Jesus is making here. If there is no salt taste, literally there is no salt. So genuine salt never loses its saltiness. But if it's impure salt, it was never really salt to begin with. So what does Jesus Because when Jesus says, uh, if, if you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? Jesus is actually asking a rhetorical question here. It's a method of thinking. How can salt that has lost its saltiness ever be restored? Salt cannot really lose its saltiness. If it does, it was never salt to begin with. So therefore, it's obvious here that Jesus is using a play on words. Right? So if salt did lose its saltiness, that... What would you, how would you restore the salty flavor? Salt it again? That's really the only thing that you can do. If salt loses its flavor, which it, if it does, it's not salt. The only way to restore saltiness is to salt it again, which is kind of redundant and really kind of foolish. The language here in the Greek implies an act of foolishness. Salt that has lost its saltiness. It's a ridiculous concept. And you could never gain it back. In other words, unsalty salt is no salt at all. It's worthless. That's something to ponder here. Jesus is really now beginning to teach deep meaning and deep genuine truth of the responsibilities of the kingdom. If we as disciples are called to be salt of the earth and the salt that we scatter in the name of Christ has no taste, it was never salt to begin with. And we are not the salt of the earth that Jesus is calling us to be. Jesus is making some very subtle but very profound points here. What Jesus is emphasizing is that his disciples are the salt of the earth. When he says you are the salt of the earth, he's giving value here to his disciples. If you are made new in the image of Christ, you have value in the kingdom and if your saltiness is not salty, you are worthless in the kingdom. See, the purpose of salt is not only to bring flavor or to preserve meat from decay, it also serves as a form of flourishing in the food that it comes in contact with. So Jesus is reminding the faithful, his disciples here, that they are to bring joy to a fallen and destructive world. Remember, look back here in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 5. We looked at this last week. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's calling his disciples to be glad and have joy, and in that, that joy and, and gladness is part of the saltiness of the kingdom that we then spread to the earth. This doesn't mean that as Christians we're just sour, salty Christians. Okay? That means the salt here that we spread is that of joy and gladness to a world that is full of sorrow and pain. Amen? If the citizens of the kingdom are blessed, that means they're happy. That means they're joyful. And the cause of this emotion in us is like is likewise a salt that flourishes in the fallen world that actually persecutes our, our his disciples. Because remember the last part of the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling them, blessed are you when others revile and persecute you. And in the middle of that persecution, be joyful and glad. The salt of the disciples, the salt of the kingdom, we are called to be salt of the earth. That joy and that gladness comes out in the midst of a fallen world that really hates the gospel. If the world hates the gospel and his disciples, the children of God, actually are the salt that Jesus is calling us to be, then what the world will taste is happiness, joyfulness, blessedness in Christ. Amen? Now let's flip over to Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 9. Jesus teaches further here about salt and the world. Mark chapter 9. I want to begin in verse 42. This is also another one of the gospel accounts of this teaching of salt and light. But it's in a context here that Mark brings dealing with uh, actually causing young ones, causing not only children, but also new ones in the faith to fall. Look here in Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell, to the unquenchable fire. Verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. That's another interesting connection here with salt. It's interesting. Let's look here at verse 50. Jesus says this. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So what is this salt then? This is another idea of salt. It's this idea of being at peace with one another. It is something that the world that is not at peace right now or ever really has been really craves. The world that has fallen, the world that is actually corrupt, actually craves the salt of the gospel because it will bring peace. You see, Mark's gospel here expands on this. See, the context here of Mark's passage is that Jesus is warning against the temptations that sin brings. And so this metaphor of salt 
is to connect it to something that will guard against sin. So the salt of the earth, we are called to be that salt that is a guard against what sin does. It's a guard against what sin corrupts. Just as salt preserves meat to keep it from spoiling, the salt of the kingdom of Christ is that which should keep the sin of the world from contaminating us and contaminating those that we come in contact with. You see that? So because if sin is that which corrupts the soul, you know, kind of like how bacteria rots meat, then salt must be that akin to that gospel of Christ which brings peace. Salt must be that agent that cleanses the soul to, to purge out the impurities, the bacteria that rots our soul. We are called as Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, to be the salt of the earth that brings peace and cleansing to the soul. You see, how is it that our soul is cleansed of sin? It's through Jesus' blood. We sang that song today, right? Nothing but the blood. I picked that one for a reason. There's something about Jesus' blood that purges our soul. It's the only thing that can purge our soul. So Jesus' blood must be like a salt, a key ingredient, even for yeast to mature in the dough. Right? See? We've got to have this in order for things to flourish, to grow. Because without that yeast active agent growing and flourishing, you don't have dough. What have you got? You just got a mess. Right? got to have all the stuff in there. So Jesus' blood must be the salt, key ingredient. And, and the soul of the sinner needs to be cleansed and purified. And we're called as God's people to be the salt of the earth. Just think about this. You know, the, the city of man versus the city of God. Fall, this city of humanity, this fallen humanity has nothing in them but what is tasteless. Is there anything in the world that is really brings flavor to our lives? I mean, it may be alluring and attractive. It may be sweet and sugary. But is there anything in the fallen world that actually gives us nourishment? No, nothing. So the salt of Christ, we are the salt of the earth. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we're called to be a particular salt. We're, we're actually called to a particular office here. And this office is to be the salt of the earth. You see, once a Christian is seasoned with Christ's blood, that person now brings flavor to a dry and tasteless world. Think about that. That's our calling. We're not to be Christians holed up somewhere, isolated from the world all the time. We are actually called by Jesus Christ here as the salt of the earth to actually bring flavor to a dead and dying world. We complain about it all the time as Christians, how, how, how foul the world is and how it's falling apart and it's not the same world that we used to do and, and everything in the United States is, is in turmoil and upheaval. Is that right? Yeah. Our world right now is on fire. Our world right now is upside down. There's a lot going on that brings me a lot of sleepless nights, doesn't it? Yeah. But we are called by Jesus here to be the salt of the earth, to bring value and taste to a dying and dry world. That is our purpose. So we've got to be engaged. We've got to be out there involved in the world so that they see the, 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 the flavor of Christ. They've got to taste and see that the Lord is good. We've got to trust Jesus in this. Now think about this. God's word is the salt that's being poured out upon this fallen world through us. That's what the world is dried up from. That's what the world is craving. So just as a good steak is worthless without seasoning, right? Anybody here like a good summer steak this time of year? Anybody been doing some grilling? 
you got to season that meat a little bit. You got to get it on the flame and char it a little bit. I see some grins back here. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, we, we men, when we want dead meat, we want it, we want it seasoned well and we want it burnt just right. We char it a little bit on that flame. That brings flavor to it. Just as a good steak is worthless without any kind of preparation and seasoning and without that burning of the flame, a disciple of Jesus Christ is worthless. A disciple of Jesus Christ is worthless without the salt that Jesus puts in us, the salt that he makes us become. We're a worthless disciple. That's what Jesus is implying here. You are the salt of the earth in verse 13. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If you claim the name of Jesus Christ and there is no salt of Jesus in you, if there is no salt of the gospel, if there is no word of God in you, Jesus is making it very clear. You are worthless to the kingdom. I don't mean to step on your toes. I'm just reading the word. Amen? Ponder that for a bit. You see, the only way that the seasoning of Christ's salt and the purging of Christ's fire in our souls can happen, that's the only way that anyone can be made holy in God's eyes. Only through the blood of Christ, only through the purging of the fire of, of the Spirit in us can any of that make us holy and clean before God. So a disciple of the kingdom who does not live like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is actually wor- is worth about as much as a tasteless salt. Or, now transitioning into the next verse, we're about as worthless as invisible light. Is light invisible? I'm not a physicist. I don't know. Some of of you in this room may have studied physics. Is light invisible? I don't know. I think it has some pretty strong power to let us see, doesn't it? So invisible light is worthless just like tasteless salt is worthless. So let's look here in verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus calls us salt. He now calls us light. This next metaphor employs uh, this idea of something that cannot be hidden. The light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You see, the students, the disciples of Jesus sitting here listening to this sermon would have immediately made a connection with this imagery to Jerusalem. We read this in Psalm 48 today. The the city of God, Jerusalem, sitting on a hill. Why is it that something on a hill is more visible than something down in a valley? If you've ever been down in a valley... Things get hidden from the valley. The mountains hide what's down in the valley unless you look really close. But if you're on top of the mountain, you can be seen from everywhere. From the other mountaintops, from the valley below, you can be seen from everywhere. The top of the mountain is also a very strategic place for a city to be. It's hard to come against a city on top of a mountain. If you've got the high ground, you've got the military advantage, right? Military folks, if you're at the top, you look down on others. You have the strength and the advantage. So, as Jesus is speaking about a light of the world, a light like city lights on a hill cannot be hidden. Students of Jesus here would have made the connection here to Jerusalem. A city set on the hill for all of the world to see. For all of the world to see the glory of God in God's people. In the city of Jerusalem. That's the imagery we see all throughout the Old Testament. See, Jewish tradition considered Israel, the nation of Israel, and Jerusalem to be the light of the world. The Old Testament makes that very clear. God calls 
Israel to be his people. And in being his people, God makes them a light in the fallen world so that they all see the glory of God through them. And Jesus is making this very clear connection to that biblical truth and to that Jewish tradition. Now, the city here that Jesus is talking about may be Jerusalem. I think it really is. But it can also be any kind of an elevated city at night. Think about this, whose lights would be visible far into the surrounding area. If you see a city up on the, on the hillside, you're going to see everything, aren't you? Matthew chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, points out the power of smaller doses of light. The light on the city in the hill would be like a powerful beacon. But look here at verse 15. Now Jesus is talking about a weaker light. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. See, it'd be foolish to take a lamp and try to hoard that light for yourself, wouldn't it? How many children have gotten busted in the middle of the night with a flashlight underneath their blankets in their bed trying to read a book. Anybody ever been busted for that as a kid? Right. They think by going underneath the blanket, y'all y'all been busted? No. Never done that? Okay. <laughs> hey, it's a good book, right? You gotta finish the book. You think by crawling underneath the blankets, your parents won't see the flashlight. But I learned a long time ago as a kid, my mama saw everything I was doing. She had eyes everywhere, right? How can you, you, you think you've got this little flashlight and you can hide the light. It would be foolish to think that that little light can be held to yourself because somebody's going to see it. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 15, right? Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It'd be foolish to try to hide this lamp. It'd be foolish to try to hinder the light because light is going to be effective for everyone who comes near it. Jesus is making a strong point here with this metaphor. The citizens of the kingdom have an important task at hand. See, genuine disciples of Christ cannot withhold the light of the kingdom. Genuine disciples of Christ, genuine Christians in the kingdom of heaven cannot hide their light under a blanket or a basket. It is impossible for a genuine Christian to hide the light of Christ. You see what Jesus is saying here? It's foolish to try to hide light because light by its very nature is going to be seen. It's going to take whatever darkness there is, just a hint of light is going to dispel the darkness. It's impossible to try to hide it. So if you're a genuine Christian, if you're a genuine citizen of the kingdom, the very nature of the light of Christ is going to affect anyone who's nearby. No one can escape the effects of the light that Jesus shines through his people. It's going to be seen. Now, that light may blind the mind of the sinner, because the mind of the sinner is already blinded to the light of Christ. But they're at least going to see it. It's going to affect them. It's impossible to hide it. The thing here to think about, this smaller light that Jesus is talking about, these lamps, these smaller wicker oil lamps that Jesus is talking about here actually gave out very little light. Has anybody ever tried to light a lamp, an oil lamp? The ones we have today are pretty good. They're not as good as the, the modern day electric lights we have, but and an oil lamp does pretty good, but, but especially these lamps of Jesus' day, it was really just more like a little candle than anything. It really wasn't a very big flame. So it never really gave much light. In order to 
be in order to light up a room, to light up a house, to be effective with this itty bitty little weak light, you had to raise it higher. You had to put it up somewhere for the light to spread. You, it would be foolish to take a lamp and hide it in a corner somewhere or hide it under a blanket or a basket and expect the rest of the house to get any kind of light. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying common sense people, normal people, when they light a lamp, they don't hide it. They put it up on a stand where other people can see it. If you think about our, even our modern day electric lights, where do we put the lamps? Where do we put the lights? Up here up top. So that it spreads out throughout the room. That's what Jesus is talking about here. By elevating a small flame, even if the light of Christ that's in you, you feel like this light that Jesus has given you is something small, what Jesus is saying, if it's elevated, it's going to be beneficial. It's going to spread throughout everywhere and everyone's going to be affected by it. So we who are weak lights, and I want to say all of us are, every one of us are weak lights in comparison to the light of Jesus Christ. Would you agree? In comparison to our Lord, the light that we have is minor. But if our light is lifted up on the shoulders of our Lord, ponder that for a minute. If the light of Christ that is in us is actually elevated and we are lifted up on the shoulders of our Lord, what kind of light and effect can that give? You see what Jesus is saying here? Don't hide your light. Elevate it. That's what he's talking about. What Jesus means in this is that citizens of his kingdom of heaven. And I want to remind you, these citizens are genuine Christians, genuine disciples of Christ. We ought to live in such a manner as if the whole world were watching us. As Christians, as citizens of the kingdom, Jesus is saying, the light that is in you is my light, and you cannot hide it, and it will be shown throughout the world, and if it's my light shining through you, live in such a way that the whole world is watching. The more public one is, the more damage is done to yourself and more damage is done to the name of Christ when that disciple or that citizen of the kingdom actually falls or acts improperly. Turn with me to John chapter 9. We need to know exactly here, and we're going to close with this, John chapter 9. We've got to know exactly the source of this light. It's not ourselves. We do not light up the world. I mean, despite what many of the great faith teachers and make you feel better about yourself, teachers say out there in the world, you are your own inner light. No, you're not. <laughs> if you look in the inner soul of every one of us, would you agree that our inner souls are as dark and depraved as anyone could ever imagine apart from Christ? We, 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 that's why we need a Savior. Our inner self is dark and damp and dreary. And Jesus tells us the light that is in you is me. Re, uh, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Jesus now speaking here about a man born blind. He says, think about this. If you're a blind person, how much light do you see? John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, what? I am the light of the world. So if Jesus 
is calling us, citizens of this kingdom, as salt and light. What are we? We are, we are the light that shines Christ before everyone else. And the reason that happens is so that the world can see the glory of our Father in heaven. As you've heard these words of our Savior, I want you to really ponder something. And this is something only God himself can do within each and every one of us. This is why I always advocate, uh, whenever you can, find time to sit and meditate and pray through God's word and listen for God's voice. Because he will constantly remind us through his Holy Spirit where we stand before his presence. Are we genuinely the salt that brings flavor to the world? Or are we the bitter vinegar that brings sourness to the world? Are we genuine light that brings happiness and warmth to a fallen world? Or are we dark and dreary? In other words, is Christ even in us? That would be the bottom question. I'm not asking you to challenge your salvation. I'm asking, where are you in relationship with our Lord? If you're not saved, if you know for a doubt that Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, He has not purged your soul of the sin that pollutes you, then clearly you're not a Christian. That needs to be dealt with. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the call of Christ through His Word. But if we, if we know beyond a shadow of a doubt we have been forgiven, we're walking with the Lord. Are there seasons of our walk with Him that are not as light as it should be? Are there seasons of our walk where we don't bring much flavor or joy? I think Jesus is making it pretty clear. If there is no saltiness in your walk, then you're worthless. If there is no light in you, you're dark. Neither one has much value. Jesus is making it clear. Citizens of the kingdom of heaven have value. They have purpose. And that value and purpose comes clearly through Christ himself, through us, to a dark world. That is what we're called to be. Notice I didn't say what we're called to do. We're called to be. We're called to be light. We're called to be the salt.